So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. super controversial, right? So he spent eight years writing a comprehensive work about barnacles first, just to cement his re reputation as a serious and thoughtful biologist. How interesting. Yes, and like Darwin, I had a very uh, controversial and interesting idea for a book myself, but I didn't study barnacles first. I threw caution to the wind, and I just wrote my damn book. It's called Why So Much, and it's published by Persistence of Vision Publishing, and if you want to buy a copy, you can find it on our website, which is pov-publishing.com, or you can get it on amazon.com. <laughs> you mean it's out now? We should celebrate. How about we have a release party at Malvern Books on June 8th? That's perfect. Malvern Books, June 8th, 2019, for all of those of you who are listening to this way in the future. It's 2019 right now, and June 8th is coming up in about a month at 7 p.m., We'll have a special guest there, too. Joe Hoppy's going to read some poems, and I'm going to read a little bit from my book and have a book signing and refreshments. So come out. Now, what's going on today? Well, today we are talking about Darwin and the Barnacle, the great nonfiction work by Rebecca Stott. And, uh, and we're going to talk about it with none other than Lewis Weil, whom we all know and love as the former boss of Nerd Night Austin and is the owner-proprietor of Money Positive. What's up, Lewis? Welcome, Lewis. Thank you. So good to be here. So good to have you, by God. <laughs> I am excited to talk about Barnacles and Darwin. Yes. That's so great. And you, you brought another book about moss, too, right? Moss yes. and Barnacles. Yeah, it was very hard to pick between moss and Barnacles, and Barnacles won out <laughs> by, a, by a frond. <laughs> I would, see, I wouldn't have guessed that I, I would be at all interested in finding out what the hell barnacles are all about, but I picked up the book, because that's what you chose to talk about, right? And um, <laughs> It was super like, cool. Thanks it, a lot, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> right. got to read this book about these little things in the ocean. Had you ever, had you given a thought to a barnacle previously? Not, not really. Other that than, was one of yeah, the reasons I went with it. I can understand. That's cool. That's very cool. <laughs> yes, barnacles are, it turns out... Very interesting creatures. I believe that uh, zoologists refer to such creatures as animals. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and thank you for saying zoologists. I have been yelled at by zoologists for yes. saying zoology. Yes, folks, if they you're listening to not study home, zoos. Do not call zoologists <laughs> zoologists, or they will dress you down on the carpet. I'm glad you said it first. Yes, yeah. definitely. <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing I, I notice about zoologists is that they <laughs> refer to things like fish as animals which is another thing you got to be careful around because you look ignorant in front of them if you call a fish a fish instead of an animal hmm. or something <laughs> i'm probably exaggerating slightly but let's just say i've been deeply traumatized by my experiences with zoologists avoid the zoologists yes, if you can they are not good people <laughs> that is the lesson i hope everyone gets today 
Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about the book. Get, get, let, let's get into to what the what the whole thing is, the deal with Darwin and the Barnacle. Okay. Um, this comes from a previous time in my life. Once upon a time, I was a PhD student at the University of Texas in the uh, Molecular and Cell Biology Department. And at the time, I thought a good approach to learning about being a scientist would be reading about past scientists and their experiences and maybe gleaning something from how they came, uh, how their careers developed. And a tip to any young budding scientists, uh, studying a Victorian scientist might not be the best way uh, to prepare for your career in science. Um, well, I'm surprised you would refer to Darwin as a scientist at all, since he was just an atheist trying to trick Christians. <laughs> it was a very Jesus. long game he was playing. <laughs> he was very um, uh, People do know Darwin, rightfully so, for uh, On the Origin of Species and The Voyage of the Beagle. And uh, I was saving this antidote, but I'll just drop it right now. Fun fact... I know no scientists who have read Origin of the Species. I believe I, it. I picked it up once. It is a dense Victorian tome. Uh, and if you want to read page after page after page about rock pigeons, you can. <laughs> so it's not, not a page turner? It is it? not a page turner, unlike Darwin and the Barnacles. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I thought I would uh, read it and... It is far, far too dense, and there is plenty of great writing uh, about evolution and natural selection. However, however, Darwin, beyond just writing on the origin of species, uh, is a fascinating and formidable scientist. Um, and in particular, I thought that uh, this book, I read several books about him, and this is... Um, and I thought it was an interesting story, uh, not just because it's an interesting story about Darwin, which if you read enough about Darwin, you read, you don't mess with Darwin. Everyone, all, one of his contemporaries who, who came at him, uh, as they say, ended up losing badly. He was very, <laughs> don't come at him. yeah, don't, do not come at Darwin. He was very smart and very good at what he did. Um, but it is a fascinating look back on um, his career that uh, that led up to the publication, and just that this uh, this creature that we don't don't even think about that we might not even think about as a living thing, um, so shaped his life and thus shaped uh, science and our lives. And yeah. I think there's lots of little stories within this book that uh, I have found to be really interesting and fun and important. And it's also very charmingly written, sort of an old-fashioned style to go with the, I think, to go with the uh, the time period, in the sense of just uh, just having that little bit of style, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I like the, um, you know, it, I don't know if you'd necessarily call it historical fiction at all, but it felt like you're reading a, a a work of fiction in a way because it was like it was telling a story it is written in, in like a novel yeah yes. uh I, I i did have a chance to email a little bit with the author oh, is that right you? yeah 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 um i was thinking about getting a tattoo of <laughs> of his barnacle and i still might 
Wow. Uh, of Mr. Arthur Bolanis, the, <laughs> the barnacle yeah. that remind me to come back to Mr. Arthur Bolanis. Definitely. Uh, because it is one of the many fun twists and turns. But I, I wanted to get a tattoo of this, so I wanted to, I reached out to the author to get a higher quality um, file uh, so that I could turn it into... <laughs> And I and I still very and I in fact y'all might end up being to blame if I end up getting a permanent thing on my body because going back and thinking about this book again after after a few years has got me wanting that tattoo again. Uh, I'm prepared to accept that blame. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it made me think of Cannery Row. Have you read? Yes, you know, yes, the, just was... the the story, like them going in, in the tide pools and finding the little creatures, oh, gosh, and like the, yeah. the quaint feeling of like just studying and collecting these things in this uh, you know time oh, gone gosh, by. There was like... what was um, his friend who worked in Cannery Row, um, the log of the Sea of Cortez, is another contender for. Um, is, is it okay to like look up names while we're here? <laughs> do whatever you want. Sure. I, know. Sure. I, I was asking you because you have a computer. So <laughs> oh, you know. want me to do it. What's his name? That's uh, not happening. This is good radio phone. right here. This I'm is good for my phone because I don't want I want to say the person's name. I'm looking it up. Uh, who wrote? Yeah, we can, it's none other than, well, it says John Steinbeck. Right? Well, John Steinbeck <laughs> wrote it with his friend. Um, Ed Ricketts. Ed, Ed Ricketts. Ricketts. Ed Ricketts was the naturalist who bef uh, who befriended John Steinbeck. And at the same time, I was reading this. I was reading a lot about Ed Ricketts. Um, and he is another another. You could argue that perhaps that uh, Darwin, whether you could argue whether he was a scientist or not, he was definitely you. You can make the case that he was a naturalist rather than a scientist. He mm. wasn't uh, developing hypotheses and performing experiments. He was studying specimens and speculating. Right. Um, so you could argue that he was a naturalist, much in the way that uh, Ed Ricketts, who ran the lab, who ended up building the laboratory. Um, that I became. I'm probably wrong, but it m might be Scripps Institute. Um, in California, this uh, amateur hobbyist who, uh, with uh, Steinbeck, ended up going to the Sea of Cortez and documenting, mm. uh, and ended up inspiring a lot of Steinbeck's writing. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I, I don't know. One thing that interested me of uh, this, while, yes, I am a biologist, I'm not... Um, in the laboratory, and a lot of what I do is more in a uh, like developed amateur or hobbyist level. And you could argue that Darwin, one of the most important uh, men of science, <laughs> uh, had a, had a similar path. He, um, you, the book starts with his near do well childhood, where he didn't focus much on his studies. He was um, from a prestigious family, his uh, in fact, his grandfather Erasmus Darwin, if, as you saw and would have seen in the book, 
had an early theory of evolution. And, and to, this is a good yeah. How time is that to mention. Confusing? There's another Darwin who also had a theory of evolution before Charles Who wrote a very influential book about it, right? Yes. Uh, Zoonomia? Zoonomia. Zoonomia. Yeah, so the, there's, that's kind of a misconception that Darwin and, uh, came up with a theory of evolution. There were lots of theories of evolution bouncing around at the time. Sure. Uh, yeah. And Darwin just happened to... Uh, have the, have the guts to, to well to, 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 to arrive at to arrive there was a lot uh there people knew that one one creature begat another creature and that over the course of time you know we looked at, at fossils and things uh changed and adapted but they didn't know how one of the prominent theories at the time was lamarckian evolution which was that you know if a blacksmith had developed a big strong arm that their all their progeny would have big strong mm. arms that, that uh, uh, so what Darwin what Darwin arrived at was the process of natural selection and the fact that evolution occurs at the population level not the individual level right. um, it's an interesting time period of course also when we talk about whether Darwin was a scientist you know it, it seems absurd because he is the creator of one of the most important scientific theories of all time. Oh, yeah. The... But at the same time, we also have to remember that it was only in the 20th century that the modern scientific method as we understand it today came about. It was, it was only in the 20th century that the idea that you should attempt to form a hypothesis and disprove it was yeah. codified as an actual methodology to be pursued. And oh, we could have a whole podcast series ranting about the uh, scientific method and how. Yes. Um, I think that would be a great series. Well, they also yeah. uh, sort of conflated the two terms of like philosopher and natural scientist yes. as well, right? Well, that's Whereas, why. Like, right. Whereas, that's like, a kind really of, good point. They, yeah. they, called them natural, they called them natural philosophers as well as scientists right. in those days. And they, they were not that's practicing what we would call the scientific method because it didn't exist yet. I mean, there were people who, who, were, who adumbrated the method, right? Who, mm. who did try to disprove hypotheses. But it wasn't a system that was understood that yeah, you were supposed system to follow. Yeah, the of hypothesis, experiment, research, yes. all hypothesis controls um, is not well laid out. And uh, to be honest, even working in science, uh, it's a hard concept to grasp. And a lot of people make... It's hard to draw conclusions and do experiments, more so than people might realize who've never uh, been in the laboratory. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think it... I think it is fair to call him a scientist, but he was definitely a scientist of his time. Mm -hmm. A lot of scientists at the time were also um, medical uh, medical doctors, and so they that was the way they made their living. Um, and on the side, their their interest in anatomy translated into their interest in the natural world, which comes up a lot in the book. And uh, Darwin, Charles Darwin. Uh, was supposed to follow in the steps of his of Erasmus Darwin and his family and become a doctor, uh, a medical doctor. Ended up not uh, not doing well in school, <laughs> and uh, they trying to decide what to do with this uh, young man who couldn't focus. Uh, they sent him into the clergy, and as part the because the choices were be in the clergy or be a medical doctor uh, for your station in life which is how he ended up on the Beagle uh, going around the world uh, where 
doing natural history, collecting samples, collecting fossils, which led him to this beach on Chile, uh, this beach in Chile where he found a conch shell, and in that conch shell he teased out this tiny, tiny barnacle, and he put it into a little vial um, and stored it away. The, the way they preserved things was they, they kept things, uh, specimens and spirits, and he kept hundreds, thousands of spirits on the ship, brought them back with him. Uh, he had drafted uh, the, first, the first draft of origin of the species, uh, but he was a very young man with no reputation, and he stowed it away. And he had been encouraged, uh, as naturalists, as gentlemen were encouraged to do at the time, to pick something and focus on it. And the, uh, people would focus on flowers, on orchids, on, on different animals, and write expansive tomes about it. And he chose, because of this odd specimen that he found, to write about barnacles. And this was how he was going to build his experience and build his reputation. Uh, and he thought he would knock this out in about a year. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Lewis, but what the hell is a barnacle? <laughs> that is a great question. <laughs> so a barnacle is an animal. It is a little shrimp-like creature. Uh, at the time when he was studying, they were thought to be mollusks like clams and oysters. Uh, and I, I don't know if he discovered it or if it was discovered at the time that they are actually uh, crustaceans, that they are arthropods. Other arthropods include uh, lobsters, crabs, butterflies, centipedes. Uh, they are a shrimp-like creature. The arthropod um, is a big class It is of a very big class of shelled, hinged animals. It's incredible that people were ever ignorant enough to think barnacles were mollusks. <laughs> yeah, but they, they had a shell. <laughs> they had a shell. Um, total tangent. 100% tangent. There's another excellent book about whales. Um, and it turns out people knew that whales were mammals for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it's just that it used to be that everything in the ocean was called a fish. Yeah. That just meant it was from the ocean. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. So, okay, so they are a shrimp-like creature that uh, they start their life as free-swimming larvae. And they, they are fully developed, they have legs, they have a brain, and eventually they find a nice, hard enough surface to settle on and they secrete a calcareous cement they cement themselves to their surface whether that is a rock a coral uh, a whale or a boat anything that is hard enough to settle on and they start to secrete a shell around themselves that is protective and they um Eventually, their brains dissolve away, and they just become a mouth and a stomach, and they use their feet to uh, filter feed in the water. So if you ever see barnacles uh, that are open, they, they can completely close their shells, but if you see one open, they will often be pulsing, and that's their feet coming out to grab plankton, which they then shovel into their mouths. Um, <laughs> And they're highly specific. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of barnacles. Uh, you can often identify 
uh, a whale by what barnacles it has because those types of barnacles only settle on that whale. Those different types of barnacles only settle at different places on a reef or in shallow water. Uh, barnacles are found from pole to pole uh, in oceans all the way up into briny rivers. They are everywhere from uh, the beach down to the deepest parts of the ocean at hydrothermal vents. Uh, they are also remarkable for having the longest penis to body length ratio. Nice. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, ratio. And they, uh, that is because once they are fixed in place, the only way for them to mate uh, is for them to feel around with their prodigious member and find somebody to mate with. They are hermaphroditic. They have both uh, male and female reproductive uh, organs. Uh, but it is not a good idea generally to self-fertilize, so they will often get in these just barnacle orgies of flailing genitalia, trying to find each other blindly in the sea. And interestingly, the term hermaphrodite wasn't used by Darwin, right? It was he he referred to them as bisexual. I did not I did not catch on to that. Yes, yes. he did. He called them bisexual, and uh, and why not? Um, in their in the deep sea where uh, it is much more unlikely for you and your thousands of uh, brethren to settle out, oftentimes there'll be one large barnacle and next to it uh, another smaller barnacle will settle out so they can mate with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, our uh, listeners, you cannot see my arms <laughs> performing the act. A little puppet show, barnacle puppet <laughs> show. Basically doing the best barnacle imitation you've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, but they, I, I think, on their own, regardless of Darwin and his contributions, uh, they are just fascinating things. And it's good to, to stop and consider a tiny thing that maybe you hadn't thought about because it has a story and a life and genetics of its own. Uh, so I, I think they're fascinating without Darwin. Uh, but they're extra fascinating with him. Well, that's in, what, in one story. of the things that, that struck me, too, is, you know, I mean, going to the beach... And looking at all the things that just wash up, and you're always going to see something you haven't seen before. It seems mm -hmm. like from my experience. And it's like, you see the craziest stuff, and you're just like, what the heck is that? So there's somebody on Earth who knows what that is. Just to see that these, like to read about these people who, you know, somebody who could walk along the beach and point out and know something about each and every little thing that washes up and, and the whole wide variety of life you get there. It's, yeah. it's really fascinating we, to see like we these... are very uh human centric the vast majority of life on earth is not uh living on land it's definitely not humans uh and what washes up on the beach is a a tiny tiny fraction of what's happening right. on the vast majority of the planet uh so st stopping and looking at a barnacle and wondering about its weird little life uh it's it's grounding yeah. sure yeah yeah and it, it it's instructive to to study an animal whose brain dissolves mm -hmm. and who has a giant penis. Yeah. We, we all meet people like that. <laughs> what a life. Yeah. What a life. So, uh, I was about to ask a question and you threw me <laughs> This is no what happens every giant time penis. Right. talk with people about yes. barnacles. The, the giant penis is quite distracting. Right. <laughs> well, so, do you think way. that the way that they... Um, approached science and you, i think you touched on this a little earlier in the uh, show but uh, the way that they approach science is antiquated to the point where we can't do that 
the same way? You no, know, I really, really appreciate that question because this is something I think about a lot. Um, that I, as, as someone who I, I work a lot in um, with sea life in aquaria, I keep um, I specialize in different things at different times. Right now, I am raising corals with the goal of doing my own experiments and I've thought been thinking a lot lately about the role of the semi-professional hobbyist which is what Darwin really was he never studied this in in the moment his his peers were people that um sorry this is a bit of a tangent he uh, he was able to do his his work because he it was right when uh trains and the post was becoming uh, uh, had advanced a lot to where he could write to somebody and have them send fossil samples. Uh, and in a similar way, we're in a time now where uh, with the internet, we are able to talk to someone who has our very small specialty. Mm, right. And I, I participate in a lot of very specific um study groups where we don't like there's only you know seven of us on the planet but we're able to find each other right because someone made a, a chat group about it oh, that's a great point. um and so there is there is science that is funded by grants which and those grants are very specific and very hard to get and uh you know you spend lot your life becoming a tenured professor so that you can do your studies there are there is science that is done uh, in the name of making a profit in industry, um, and that does not cover everything. I this is a very sophomoric thought I'm having right now, uh, but uh, in that it is not very well developed. In that I have been thinking about this a lot lately. In mm -hmm. that way, it is sophomoric. That um, I think there is a large role for a well-informed, educated person who is not affiliated with an institution to be doing studies. Uh, there was a fish that was, there was only one of it left. It was extinct in the wild. One zoo had one. And in order to save the species, they reached out to hobbyists to try to find somebody who, who had one so that they could preserve mm. the species. And this happens a lot. Um, in different in different hobbies in people who just are obsessed with something uh and accumulate it uh, maybe this shouldn't be uh, so surprising i ran nerd night for nine years <laughs> um but no i i do think that there is a role um and i think it's a bit of a lost art um i know that um people in academia look down on hobbyists and people in the hobby think that uh, the people in academia are snobs and the people in industry <laughs> uh, just care about money. And they're not all wrong. I, I yeah. think that there needs to be, I've been thinking a lot lately, that there needs to be, um, in the way that uh, some, some best practices have developed in academia and in industry, there needs to be best practices in, uh, in the hobby world to where people... Are conducting experiments in a, in a proper way and documenting them in a proper way uh, but I think that there not only is this um, a, a good thing I think it is necessary I think it is actually far a far larger field than uh, we are supporting 
through grants or it can be supported uh, through a business. Um, so just self-motivated study, I think, is extremely important. We need a change in the language in a way because it, the word amateur didn't always have any in, in, uh, negative connotation. It used to be that people proudly refer to themselves as amateurs. Today, if you refer to someone as an amateur, it's almost always meant to be oh, a disparaging I, I had no idea that it was anything other than self-deprecating or derogatory. <laughs> no, no, it was... It was it was simply descriptive. I mean, at one time, people were proud to be amateurs. It, 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 to some extent, it's what, the way we use hobbyists today. But okay. even that, I mean, if I say I'm a hobbyist astronomer, I'm pretty much implying that I'm not a serious astronomer. But I could be a serious hobbyist astronomer. I, I am working on a project to spawn coral in captivity. Um, coral are animals. They eat and they have sex and they spawn. Uh, and I, it, coral spawning is a very uh, is going to be very important for the the future of reef survival uh, and people being able to do experiments with millions and millions of larvae. Being able to do it in captivity is going to be extremely important. And I cannot get any academics to reply to me. Yeah, I'm <laughs> surprised. And we should probably remind them that Charles Darwin was himself. Yeah. An amateur scientist. Right? He was also extraordinarily wealthy, which is why he was, he was able yeah, to do right. what a hobbyist amateur yeah, yeah. who was one of the most important yeah. thinkers in the history of science. Yeah. And, and I think it's important. I, I encourage people if you have the time and the means uh, to find something and focus on it and study it. Feels like, uh, you know, the idea of, of like, okay, um, there's Picassos out there in people's basements. You should go to all of the yard sales you can to try to find them. You know, sometimes it oh, feels that, that that hard to, you know, I mean, I, I, I have certain fields of study uh, that I, I find fascinating and read books about, but just the idea, the very idea of like coming up with something that someone hasn't already covered, like it, so much further than I could ever dream of, seems just really, really remote. There's an infinite you know? number of things to study. There's a lot of things to find something discover. that you care enough about. And there's also, not all scientists, science has to be not about making a, an original, not all science is about making original contributions, innovative contributions necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of taxonomy out there. There's people who just need to find things that nobody's found before. Right? It's not necessarily coming up with a brilliant new theory all the time. No. Uh, uh, there's, there's a wonderful app uh, where uh, iNaturalist, where people can document uh, plants and animals that they see in the wild, and it has been enorm an enormous resource because there's millions of people documenting the, the grasses and bugs that they're yeah. seeing but, uh, yeah, versus you, how many people can be in the field. You do hear of it. I mean, quite often, actually. Yeah. I can't think of any examples right off the bat, but of, of amateurs or, or hobbyists coming at, like, discovering a new type of there's, such and such. Worm oh, gosh. Like, there's this fish that was, um, that became incredibly important to science, and it was discovered by a Chinese Boy Scout. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. That's great. Wasn't graphene one of these things that uh, some hobbyists came up with? And... I'm sure, but uh, but like Darwin, <laughs> 150 years ago, we were all hobbyists. Amateurs and proud of it. Yes, darn go. right. Uh, we're, we're a little close on time, but just to quickly get back to the book, and one thing I, I definitely felt was that it was a, a marvelous kind of adventure story. Uh, it, it had a little bit of Patrick O'Brien feel to it. Um, he, he, these these people were 
Darwin and the others were were engaged in real adventures on the high seas, mm-hmm. living dangerous lives, uh, risking their lives for something that that was a lot more interesting if you think about it than if they had been going after treasure or something like that. Oh, absolutely, going and uh, and ri- risking life and limb very seriously. Uh, people died of diseases and accidents commonly. And to put yourself on a sailboat and go to the other side of the planet to a, a, an unknown tropical beach to tease out a barnacle I mean, uh, is the most, quite the adventure. One of the most fearsome things you can do in a sailing ship is to go around Cape Horn, the southern tip of uh, South America, which is That's exactly what you, have to do what you have to do to get from England to To tease Palacios. out. But you're absolutely right. The, the, you know... Uh, Searching for gold is, is one thing, but searching for the truth, the origin of, of, of life, mm-hmm. uh, is, is a phenomenal goal. Um, and it was interesting to, to hear little anecdotes about how it affected per- people personally, like Coldstream, who was um, pretty much had a nervous breakdown because he was a man of faith. And oh, coming, and the more the, he learned, the more he learned, the, the more, more. Yeah, he had. Yeah, he had a he had a breakdown. He had a nervous breakdown because he couldn't uh, reconcile his faith with what he was seeing right. under this newly invented microscope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you consider the fact that what Darwin eventually did publish uh, really did, um, I mean, it, even today is still a hot topic. In some we ways. are recording this in Texas, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's right. Crazy. <laughs> really crazy. Texas. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we better get to our. I have oh no, you do have something I have else. one tangent that I feel like it's perfect do. to end on. Uh, one of the things that I love most about this is that Mr. Arthur Bolanis, the little uh, uh, barnacle that started this whole adventure that led to him writing, uh, refining his theory and becoming Charles Darwin, uh, Mr. Arthur Bolanis turned out to not really be a barnacle at all. (laughs) 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 Or a Mr. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a Yes. Yes. That's marvelous. Yeah. Uh, Just goes to show you when you, when you pursue these wild little magical adventures, you wind up in strange places. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And even Darwin can be wrong. Yes. Even Darwin can be wrong. (laughs) Okay. Well, so yeah, let's on to the lightning round, right? Shall we? And, and you said you have not prepared. I have not this, prepared. This is a there, total might be cold, some, there might be some silence. Cold approach. Okay, well, fantastic. Realize Here we go. This is a pass fail test. Of, <laughs> you, you can be. I'm going to be having drinks. You're, you're, for a you're while. hearing, uh, uh, you're going to hear answers right off the top of your head. Okay, here we go. Uh, when was the first time you remember falling in love with a book? Oh, wow. Um, probably. Either the in high school reading Ursula K. Le Guin, Left Hand of Darkness, or when I was seven and read my first Garfield collection. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Wow. Um, Yes, I would say every book does, but. No, that's not even a good a good way to not even a good qualifier. Oftentimes, reading a book, you read thoughts that you had never even considered. So they're not challenging uh, a preconceived notion; they are replacing ignorance. Mm. Uh, so I would say every book uh, that I've picked up, there is something that has changed my mind in that it added to my mind. 
Good answer. Woo! Has <laughs> a book ever made you cry? Ben Lewis doesn't cry. <laughs> I, uh, not to sound... Uh, I really don't. Um, <laughs> except, except at random, uh, and unless there's a dog in a movie. <laughs> um, I, I cry enough for both of us. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't cry that often in real life. I did cry. I have cried watching movies on airplanes. Um, I do remember a tear falling on the page when I read, um, oh, what was the book? It's not called, is it called The Good Earth? It's a yeah, Pearl Earth book. Yeah, yeah. I, I do remember in high But it was not your tear. It was someone <laughs> standing over my shoulder. No, no, I, I, when I cry, I'm proud of my tears. I don't reserve my tears. They just don't come often, but I did. There was something about that book, about watching the, uh, the family change, the, the, the way people were treated, um, the children, uh, and the, their interactions with their parents. I, I do remember... Uh, because it was a school copy, uh, <laughs> and it was now Waterworld. <laughs> oh, I do great. remember that. That's great. All right, so name a book that you've read more than once. Well, Darwin and the Barnacle. Okay, yeah. Uh, I've read Darwin and the Barnacle two or three times. Um, I'm, I'm hold. I've brought another book. Um, then, Professor War uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, wrote All Your Worth, a uh, financial planning book that is very formative in my life. Uh, I have read now twice. Um, uh, there's a, a Gathering Moss by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, if, you're, if barnacles are uh, thrilling to you, you'll also be thrilled by moss. Um, and I don't know if it counts as reading multiple <laughs> times because it is a largely... A uh, pic- uh, book of pictures. It's a coffee table book, but the oldest living things in the world, um, by Rachel Sussman. I I've mm. probably bought twenty copies of this book. I give it to people, and I have looked at through it hundreds of times. Fantastic, wonderful. One more question, and this is the one that always gets everyone, and in, in that nobody's ever had a good answer so far. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any poetry committed to memory? See, there you go. Oh no, the streak remains. I would have, the streak I, remains. I would have prepared, and it would have been disingenuous. <laughs> yes. So, no, I like that. That's sorry. fine. That's fine. I have one committed to memory. It's called "The Cow" by Ogden Nash, and it goes like this: The cow is of the bovine ilk. One end is moo, the other milk. Thank you. Brilliant. That's Brilliant. The cow by Ogden Nash. Fantastic. Do you have a suspicious number of rhymes for us? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been fantastic. I really, really enjoyed talking to you about this book. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Louis. It was a delight. Where can the the people catch you out and about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You'll you'll see me at the North Door at many events. Excellent. The North Door, folks. Great, great venue here in Austin, Texas. Beaver, any other announcements? Uh, nothing except that, yeah, that uh, my book is now available on, on, at Amazon.com. The t- title is Why So Much by Lance Myers, and the book release is on June 8th at Malvern Books. Come see us. Excellent, excellent place. Yes. Great the treasure really cool. of a bookstore. Greatness. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone. See ya.
Goodbye. Thank you.